Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Acts 10, verses 1 to 48. At Caesarea, there is a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and have related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descended, descending, bringing let down by it by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But, Pe but Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God had made, has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, <clears throat> how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Pastor Rich. Uh, Happy New Year again. Um, And uh, if you're visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you to our church. Welcome to Risen. Uh, So glad that you're starting your new year worshiping with us. And, uh, you know, we're back in the book of Acts, as you can tell. We took a short break during the Advent season. And uh, what we see or what we've been doing um, as we've been learning from Acts is we've been reading about the early life of the church, right? And in the early church, what we'd see is this explosion of evangelism, uh, this unprecedented discipleship and generosity and service. We see here a, a, a unparalleled kind of courage, do we not, and perseverance. And I hope as you sort of listen to me there, you kind of notice all these different things that we see in the early church because it just wasn't one thing, right? It wasn't just a bold proclamation without any kind of discipleship or, uh, you know, service without any kind of courage. I mean, the early church uh, was holistic. You know, I think that um, as a church and as a Christian and even as a pastor, sometimes it's easy to get complacent, isn't it? Uh, It's easy just to be passionate about the thing that that maybe you're passionate about. But we see in the early church is this holistic faith. Uh, witnessing and testifying to what could only be, what could only be done, what could only be accomplished by the transforming power of the gospel, right? And so we see here is Luke, uh, the writer of Acts, what he's saying here is Christianity is never just a set of beliefs. It's not, it's never just a religion that doesn't make a difference in your life. No, what Luke is saying is that it is a transforming power. Um, It's a life-changing difference. Uh, the biblical truth of the gospel, it undeniably breaks into you and it challenges you. It challenges you. You should feel that, right? It challenges you every single Sunday when you come here. You know, you're like, oh, right? It's challenging you and God is trying to break into you and he is trying to change you. That is what is, that is, what is happening. You may feel the force of it. It just won't stop. It's, it's relentless. 
when the scriptures talk about coming to faith and following Jesus, that is what it means. It means life transformation. It means gospel power. Uh, the, the word of God never wants to come back empty. It, it's sort of just like this, 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 it's like my dog, Champ. You know, whenever she comes to me, I know she wants something, okay? And she won't return back to her place until she, she gets what she wants. In the same way, the word of God, when it comes upon you, it is wanting something and it will not return empty. Uh, listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bring, uh, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, right? The tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's God's promise. It's God's declaration that when you sit under the authority of his word, it will not return empty. It will uproot the thorns and it will plant trees of life that bear fruit. And so I can testify to you uh, that I'm still being transformed by the grace of God and his design and purpose. My own personal sanctification journey uh, is not finished. His word is still uh, speaking to me and, and searching me out and he is relentless with me and I'm still growing in the faith even though I don't feel it sometimes, even though I don't want to do it sometimes. When I think about my wife, Jen, you know, she's not the same person that I dated, you know. Um, she's not the same person I married. Over the decade that we've known each other, uh, that we've dated, that, that we've been married, that now we have kids and parents, she has grown in every season of her life. I was, I was talking to her the other day. I was like, you know what? Like, man, I think you've outgrown me. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm three years older than you, but grasshopper, I have no more to teach you. <laughs> but uh, jokingly, I say that, but in, in all seriousness, I, I, I told her that. It's like, wow, you've grown so much. Like, I don't know if I've grown as much as you have this, this, this decade that we've known each other. Um, man, she's become more gracious and humble. She's become more uh, persevering and resilient. She's become more wise. And, and the truth of the power, I get, I get a sort of front row seat of how it's, uh, uh, the power of the gospel is changing her and just how over a span of a decade and a plethora of unpredictable life events, um, the, God has not, uh, the word of God has not returned upon her um, empty. And I was like, hey, what about me? Have I, have I changed? She's like, yeah, you've gotten a little bit more patient. <laughs> you know, you know, like, oh, you know, she's like, yeah, you, you know, you don't, you don't get as angry anymore. <laughs> but this is my prayer and my hope for all of us, right? It, it's God's will to transform us, you know, because when I think about the new year and, you know, um, about, all the resolutions and the aspirations and the goals we may have in this new year. And, and some of us are wondering what God is doing now. And it's like, man, this, already this year has gone off to a terrible start. You know, um, I was with a bunch of pastors in San Francisco the other day. It's part of the Stratum Network. It's a, it's a uh, coaching group. And we're sharing. And each one of us had shared how we had been together with our, you know, family outside of our nuclear family and how things had just gone, gone wrong, you know, how there was just a lot of conflict and, 
And, you know, our kids had come back from college and, you know, they were excited because it was the first time that the family had been together for a long time, but things had kind of gone haywire. So, you know, we're here in this new year and maybe some of us are already like, man, this is not a good start. And some of us are wondering what God is doing or what he's going to do. And uh, we have it very clear here for us, though, in the book of Isaiah. And as we'll see in the book of Acts, God's will is very clear. And it's to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Right? The most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most courageous and resilient person who ever walked the earth. What could be more profound than that? Today, we find ourselves in Acts 10. We're back in Acts 10. We're looking at the conversion of a man named Cornelius. And in his life, we are going to see three things. Here are, here's our outline, three things. First, we're going to see the providence of God. We'll talk about what that is. Two, we're going to see God's desire for spiritual growth, as I kind of highlighted uh, in my introduction. And then lastly, we're going to see the power for spiritual growth. Because you and I, we don't just need God to say, yeah, I want you to grow. No, we need power. Like We can't do it on our own. So let's take a look at the first point, the providence of God. Now, uh, what you've noticed in this vision, a bulk, oh sorry, in this passage, a bulk of this passage is two visions, right? And I don't know about you, but when someone comes up to me and they say, I had a vision, I'm very skeptical. (laughs) I'm very skeptical. Uh, The reason is because sometimes um, a vision from God could be wishful thinking cloaked in spiritual jargon. And so what I want to do before we dive into the main point of this this passage, what I want to do is just give a brief explanation of the teaching about prophecies and visions in Scripture. And then we will get into the main point of this passage. Um, And according to all the visions in the Bible, they're they're accompanied by three characteristics, three characteristics. And I'm just going to briefly go over them. The first characteristic is that the prophecy or the vision is never for a personal agenda. Okay, God is never uh, commanding someone to sin, to go against him, and it's always in line with scripture, you know? Let me, let me just read a, a passage here from Deuteronomy chapter 13. You know, God knows that there might be a tendency for people to prophesy or to give visions in his name, so he's like, hey, I want to give you some, some guidelines here. So he says, if a prophet or a dreamer arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and avoid his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him, but that prophet or that dreamer shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the ways in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the first thing we see here, that prophecy, it always serves the mission and the love and the glory of God. You know, sometimes you see certain, I don't know, uh, churches and sometimes they, you know, the leader will say, oh, I have a prophecy now, like I am actually right? God. Or, you know, I am the second coming, you know? And, and, and it's going against the word of God. It's going against the fact that Jesus is only God, that Jesus is the one who will be uh, returning the second time. And so what we can identify here is that prophecy always serves the glory of God and not to the, to the prophet. Now, the second thing we see here in, in God's guidelines for prophecy is that it always came true. It always came true, right? Um, I remember I was at a 
retreat when I was a youth student, and someone prophesied over me and was like, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do that. Or, or you were this, you were this, you're identifying things in the past. And I was like, actually, no, I'm not the oldest child. Actually, I wasn't born here. And the person was like, oh, I got two out of five though, right? You know, I'm like, no, man, that's not prophecy, right? That's guessing. Uh, to prophesy falsely, whether it's with good motives or bad motives, uh, actually, in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. Right? To speak on behalf of God is a serious deal. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 says this, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So, you know, um, I'll tell you, as one who speaks on behalf of God, I'm, I'm usually terrified half the time. Seriously. Um, I'm also, anytime you ask me for advice, I'm like always hesitant to say, you know, I'm like, I don't know, man. There's like a million things God could be thinking or wanting. I don't know what his will is. We need to pray about it. And we could say this might be it. But for me, I'm just usually, usually hesitant. And when I do make mistakes, which I do, I'm thankful that we're in the new covenant now. And that y'all aren't going to put me to death, right? Uh, we don't have to make bloody sacrifices because Jesus is the one who's, who's paid it all. But we have to be very careful when we're listening to each other and we're trying to identify God's will. Because when we say, hey, I think this is God's will for you, we are speaking on behalf of God. And there are tremendous consequences for that, not only for the person who listens to you and thinks you are speaking on behalf of God, but just between you and God, right, alone. So that's the second thing we see here. It always came true. And so even for me, as, we, as I share out sort of like the 2023 vision, I can't say this is God's will. I can say, hey, this is the plan that me, the, the elders, and the ministry leaders have, but, you know, like, let's pray about it. I don't know if it's God's will. We'll see what God's will is. Lastly, uh, prophecy and visions, they are extraordinary. Um, they are not the normal way that God speaks to us. The book of Hebrews, uh, right from the beginning of this book, the author says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? Through prophecy and visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, many Bible scholars believe that the New Testament era was this transitional period of prophecies and visions because Jesus' life and teachings was still in the process of being recorded by the disciples, so in the Old Testament is, and, and this transitional time in the New Testament, God still was speaking through visions and prophecies, but was phasing it out as the disciples and the apostles were all recording, right, Jesus' words and his life. And so if God works through visions and prophecies, it's extraordinary. It's not regular. It's not the common occurrence. Typically, he works through, right, the word of God. Now, the main point of this passage is not to just lay out, right, a, a sort of guideline, a brief excursus on prophecy and visions. Actually, the main things that, that now we're going to get into, uh, I just wanted to get rid of that, what, what my, perf my preaching professor called me a defeater. People are going to be thinking about, you have to kind of defeat that sort of uh, speed bump before you get into the bulk of the text, right? One of the main things I want us to take away from this passage is that, the, and it's teaching us that the Christian life and the Christian journey is one of spiritual transformation. And spiritual transformation, it comes through God's providence. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word providence, it's, it's a theological term. And the prefix pro means before, and the Latin root is videre, which means to see. So 
based on its etymology, providence means to see beforehand. But in scripture, providence is not just uh, foreknowledge. It's not the ability to know the future. Providence is not limited to God's ability to know the future. Providence refers to God's care of the world and his ultimate supervision of it, right? Providence is that God is in control of every single one of your life and he has designed it ordinarily, right? You may think it's an accident, right? Um, Maybe the church that you wanted to go is not open for COVID and you came here or something. You may think it's an accident, but God is saying, no, I I, I dictated that. I'm in control. That's providence. Now, th- that concept of providence, though, is, uh, has diminished significantly because our culture's dominant worldview uh, calls it now coincidences. Um, we live in a very closed and material universe where everything happens according to just causality of physical effects, operating outside of God's providence. But according to Christian theology, according to Scripture, There are no accidents. There are no chance meetings. All our footsteps are guided by God, right? In his providence and foresight, God takes steps in advance to guide and to care for you. So let me bring this back to our text here. In our passage, Cornelius is minding his own business, (laughs) right? Um, Just going about his weekly tune. I know he's he's lint rolling his, his toga, you know, walking his dog, But in God's providence, he decides to interrupt interrupt Cornelius' day. Peter, on the other side of town, is also minding his own business, trying to have a quiet prayer meeting. But God, in his providence, decides to interrupt Peter's plans too. Neither of these guys know what God is doing. Neither of them have heard of each other. Cornelius has never heard of Peter. Peter has never heard of Cornelius. God hasn't even given them the roadmap. In verse 4, when God interrupts Cornelius' day, it says that he is terrified. In verse 17, it says that when God interrupts Peter's day, he's perplexed, he's confused. And Peter goes to Cornelius in verse 29, he says, hey, why did you, why did you send men to my house to come to you? And Cornelius says, oh, I don't, God told me to. I don't, I don't know what's going on, man. One is scared, the other is confused, but God is bringing them together, isn't he? And what we learn here, this is the principle, and that is this. God's providence church is always at work. You know, maybe, you know, you're in a community group and you're like, man, I wish, I wish, you know, I wish I I was in, you know, like there was this person in my community that I can learn from or there was that person I can learn from. But God has brought the people in your community group providentially together. God is bringing the people, the encounters, and the situations in our lives And he does this not so that we can be comfortable. He knows that if we got to choose, we would choose comfort. But God, for our own spiritual growth and our spiritual transformation, and for the glory of his kingdom, God providentially brings the people and circumstances into our lives. We want comfort. God wants growth. And what we see here is that sometimes we think, and even me as a pastor or or whatever, you know, we think that, oh, Peter is just here to help Cornelius, right? No, no, no. In our passage, what we're going to see here is God is using Cornelius to also help Peter. It's reciprocal. You know, so maybe you're helping out with risen kids and 
I don't know, they're not, I mean, they're not here right now, but maybe they hear me on the screen and they think, oh, I'm just helping out the kids, but also you are learning and you are being challenged and you are growing even as the kids are interacting with you. God is providentially, friends, connecting us to each other. And that is the main way he speaks to you. That is the main way he loves you. That's the main way he answers your prayer. And this passage really resonates with me deeply because we're looking at the formation of the early church. And at Risen, we're sort of in the beginning of the early formation of our own church. And I recognize, as just as we recognize in the book of Acts, without the Luke's, without the Barnabases, without the Stevens and the Phillips and the Corneliuses and Peters, and the list goes on and on, and we're going to see that it's not just dudes, we're going to learn about Lydia and Priscilla without God bringing people providentially to the early church and to our church, none of his kingdom work could happen. You see? This is a providential gathering. God is orchestrating every single one of your life in the midst of our church. But this takes faith. It takes faith. Faith in God's providence. Faith that he knows better when you want something else. Faith when you don't feel it. Faith when you can't see it. Faith when you're scared like Cornelius. Faith when you're perplexed like Peter. It takes faith. Because Cornelius could have either said, Providence? <laughs> Ridiculous. I'm not going to Joppa, right? I've got to send two of my guys and a soldier. That's a lot of money, man. <laughs> Peter could have said, what? I'm not going to go to this Roman centurion's house. What is he going to do? He's going to kill me? That's what Jonah did, right? God had a will for Jonah. Jonah ran away. But both of them obey God's word. By both, they both get out of their comfort zones, don't they? They both get together. They submit to God's word and they're forever changed. The church is forever changed. They sharpen one another. They're, they're bringing the Holy Spirit to each other. They're living life together. They're worshiping God together. They're reaping a spiritual harvest. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so the first thing I want us to identify here when we look at this text is that God's hand is written, is his fingerprints are all over it. And as we look at that, it would be like a mirror on our own lives and we would see God's fingerprints just all over our own life, our friends, our church, our community groups, our family, everything. So that's the first thing, God's providence. Now, the second thing I want us to take a look at is God's desire for spiritual growth, right? What is God doing in his providence? He's trying to get us to grow, right? He's trying to turn us into the likeness of Christ. That's what he's trying to do. See, in our text here, we have two very different people. They're different in every single way. They're raised differently. They're different ethnically. They're different culturally. They're different politically. They're different professionally. At the same time, they are both very spiritual, they're both very generous, and they are both very faithful. Cornelius, as we see throughout the text that's repeated several times, is a very godly man who led his family well. He was a man of prayer who gave generously to people. He was upright, well-spoken of for his faith. And Peter, as we all know, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He, he, besides Jesus, Peter is the only one who walked on water when Jesus called out to him. Peter is the first disciple, as we've learned in the book of Acts, to preach the gospel. He's the first one that stood up boldly and, and preached and proclaimed Jesus Christ. He's been arrested. He's been beaten. Not only that, he's actually been rejoicing for getting arrested and beaten and counts it worthy to suffer like his Savior. 
creator is an amazing human being. As a Christian, I know that my suffering is supposed to bring me into a deeper fellowship with Christ. All suffering is because that's when we finally place, we finally surrender, and we throw ourselves upon the love of God. Right? In that suffering is a fellowship, there is a filling, there is a divine dependence that you and I can only experience, that kind of upper echelon of fellowship, that we can only experience that in suffering. Right? We don't typically throw ourselves upon God like that, desperate, unless we're suffering. It's, it's a way we experience this supernatural fellowship where only God, right, is carrying us. Not our jobs, not our marriages, not our families, not, nothing else but God. And that's hard for me, to be honest. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm like, oh, I know that, that, that brings me to the fellowship of God, but I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> but, but it takes me a while when God is trying to bring that into my life. But that's what Peter did. Peter kept voluntarily putting himself into suffering so that he can experience this, this blissful fellowship. <laughs> But what is God saying to both Cornelius and Peter here? Two very godly men, two very devout, faithful men. God is saying, there's more growing to be done. That's what he's saying. I'm going to shake your life up. You need to grow more. I think many of us, if we're to be honest with ourselves, if if we have not told God this explicitly, maybe we feel this implicitly, we say, you know, God, there's things that I don't want to do. There's no, there are things I don't want to do for you. There are areas where I do not want to grow. I would like comfort more than perseverance. Right? I would like immediate results more than faith. I would like justice more than forgiveness right now. Right? There are areas in our lives where we tell God, I don't want to change. I don't want you to transform me. I don't want you to redeem this. My sanctification journey is done. It's tempting for us to look at this passage um, and take away a theological statement, which is that God wants us to be on mission as a church, right, to all kinds of people. And that's true, and we will get to that, but God is also a God of providence, friends, and he is working intentionally and met- he is working intentionally in your life. That's what he's doing. He wants you to grow. He wants you to change. He wants you to get transformed. So let's take a look at Cornelius here. How is God trying to transform Cornelius? Well, right, God is saying, Cornelius. There are things that I'm going to ask you to do that you're not going to understand and I'm just going to want you to do it, right? God says, hey, I want you to send two people over there. Cornelius is like, why? God's like, that's, not, that's above your pay grade. You're going to be afraid as Cornelius was. You're going to be uncertain as he was. You're going to be uncomfortable, but you need to grow in faith, Cornelius, right? Because after hearing what God was asking of him, what does Cornelius do? He's afraid, but he doesn't ignore God, right? He exercises his faith. He acts, right? He steps out in faith. He sends two of his servants and a devout soldier to Peter. And doing this faith, uh, Cornelius is not just stepping out in faith. He's also sacrificing 
You know, um, I've been doing ministry for 15 years, right? Uh, youth pastor for eight years, um, assistant pastor, a church planting apprentice. I'm the church planter now. Every single season of my life, I'm like, God, I, I, I give my best. <laughs> I'm like, I have no more to give, right? And God's like, hmm, you can sacrifice more rich. And I'm sort of at this place now, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I'm like, Lord, I'm tired. There's no more. I can't give you anymore. And God's like, no, you can give more. I was reminded as I was reading this text, Moses, right? You know, when did God call him into ministry? After 40 years of being a shepherd, God called him at the age of 80 to lead Israel out of Egypt. You see? God doesn't, we're not done until God says we're done, you know? And so he sacrificed, and Cornelius says, you know, he's generous. And God's like, no, I want, to, I want you to sacrifice more. Go send two soldiers and, and three, two of your, uh, go send a soldier and two of your servants to Joppa. Go. And Peter arrives. What does Cornelius do? Well, in the beginning of our passage, in verse 2, it says that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, right? So his family worships, uh, worships God. But later, when Peter comes in verse 24, it says that Cornelius called together his relatives and close friends, right? So what's happening here? Cornelius is growing in his evangelistic efforts, right? He's probably getting rejected by some of uh, his friends that he wants to invite. Some probably don't even respond. Some probably think he's crazy. Some probably are tired of hearing him trying to invite them to come to church, but Cornelius doesn't care about any of that. You know, he's like, I love you guys. I want you all to know God. Come over. We're going to learn about him. Sounds like a community group leader here, right? Cornelius is courageous. He's joyful. He's bold. He's confident that this God, the gospel, is what people need. Cornelius is, is, is sort of like this garden and there's this explosive life in it. It's waiting to bear fruit. And so God is bringing providentially people into his life so that there can be growth here. So Cornelius does not only just, he's not only a faithful person who leads his family, now he's became a courageous evangelist, right? Who's inviting his friends, who's inviting his relatives. Whatever they say. Now, the last thing God works in Cornelius' life, right? God is essentially saying, Cornelius, you are faithful, man. You are generous. You are devoted, but you still lack something. You know, we might think, what, what is Cornelius Lee lacking? And what is God, what, what happens when Peter comes? What does he bring? The Holy Spirit. God is saying, Cornelius, you're lacking the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And we're like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit, that's important. <laughs> that's important. The Holy Spirit is really important. Right? God is still saying to Cornelius, man, you know, man, you're faithful. And you're generous. And you're courageous. But you need the Holy Spirit. And the only way the Holy Spirit comes is if you get together with people. Right? And as you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls. The Holy Spirit falls. God also challenges Peter. Peter also has room to grow. For all of Peter's um, relational uh, capital with Jesus, he was handpicked by Jesus to be his disciple. 
walked on water, one of the three who saw Jesus transfigured, God tells Peter, hey, you got, you got room to grow too. Right? Because Peter was very, very, very used to his, his way of practicing his faith. And he had a lot of religious assumptions. He figured, hey, these are how things should be done. It's how I understand faith should be practiced. And God is saying, Peter, I love you. I'm using you, but you got room to grow. And in the same way, church, God is coming to us today, just like he came to Peter and Cornelius. And and God is challenging our comfort. He is challenging our fears. He is challenging our assumption. And he's saying, look, there's a beautiful garden bed here. Let's grow it. Let's grow it. Now, this brings us to the last thing we see in our text, the power for spiritual growth. Man, I've preached on this text twice. This is the second time I've preached on this. And this passage is, is just masterful. It's masterful. And it's like doubly masterful because it's all by God's providence. No one knows what's happening. And God is the one who's writing this. Because Cornelius and Peter, they're natural enemies. Because of the Roman occupation in Israel, there is this natural enmity, this natural hostility between these two people groups, the Romans and the Israelites. A centurion was the commanding officer in the Roman Empire. And a centurion is the one who carried out Jesus' death. So neither of these two would really step into each other's homes. And second, in the Old Testament, there were these rules and regulations in how Jewish people were supposed to live. There was this distinction between clean and unclean. And most of the time, something unclean was related to death, to evil. And so if you went to a funeral, funeral or if you broke of any of God's commands, you'd be considered unclean and you had to offer sacrifices to atone for that. Some of the clean laws that seemed arbitrary, so... You know, cows were considered clean to eat, but not pigs. But all of these clean and unclean laws, they were just a reminder of this principle that God wanted to teach everyone. That is, look, y'all don't know how holy I am, how clean I am. Y'all think you're clean? No, no, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. That was the principle. I think the challenge is that you and I, friends, we like to make distinctions amongst us who is clean and unclean, right? Like Peter. God, I'm clean. I don't hang out with unclean people. Or when we're with one another or we talk to each other, we go, oh, that's not something I would do. That sounds unclean. But the book of Hebrews, it reminds us that no one is clean. And nothing we do makes us better or worse than each other because in God's eyes God is the standard God is the ultimate judge he sees our thoughts he sees our minds he sees our public and private lives in God's eyes we're all unclean in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 the writer is trying to remind the Jewish congregation of this and he says the sacrifices that are continually offered every year they can never make perfect to those who draw near but in these sacrifices there is only a reminder of sins for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away sins can you just think about that just think about that right like like a lot of us 
when we make a mistake, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in the home, maybe it's at church, we feel like we got to redeem ourselves, you know? We got we to gotta make up for it. We got to take away the sin through the blood of bulls and goats. But the author of Hebrews is saying, look, yeah, actually, no, that doesn't really do anything, right? It's a reminder that what you need is an ultimate sacrifice. An ultimate sacrifice that will ultimately cleanse your conscience. An ultimate sacrifice that will bring you ultimately before God clean. And so in the, in the prophet, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, God, God gives a new promise. He says, there will come a day when I will put my spirit in you. There's going to come a day where I'm going I'm to put my spirit in you. So the people of God are waiting. They're waiting for this, this spiritual power. Jesus then comes along and he spends three years with Peter. And he's trying to teach him. Look, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what your faith practice is, whether you're Roman or Jewish, whether you're a prostitute or a priest, you are all the same. Everyone is unclean and I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice to make you clean. But Peter is struggling to understand this concept. He gets a vision. God says, eat that food. And he says, God, I've never, never eaten anything unclean. In his heart of hearts, Peter still doesn't understand what God has accomplished and what God is trying to accomplish in the world. There's nothing about Peter. There's nothing about me. There's nothing about you, right, that makes us any better or worse. There's only one way that makes us clean, and that's through Jesus. And so finally, the penny drops. Peter understands this. And in verse 34, Peter says what? He says, I truly understand now. I get the gospel. God, it took me a while. But I now understand that if you forgive me and you've forgiven them, that means I got to forgive them too. That's what it means. He says at the end of the passage, everyone who believes, man, he just, you know what, man, Peter's, you know, he's, he's proud. He's, he's, he's a little bit, I don't know, racist, I guess. <laughs> and then the penny drops and he goes, he goes on a gospel rampage for 15 verses. It's filling his spirit. And he says, man, I, I believe now everyone uh, will receive forgiveness from him. And everyone received the Holy Spirit who believe and trust in Jesus. I love, I love, man, I love just how God's providence works. He uses broken people to display his perfect truth. Here's Peter, and he had tremendous faith. Still has room to grow. And it's like a a mirror for us as we look at it because I think, friends, you and I, we are sometimes also a little bit slow to, to get the gospel, to truly understand it. I think a lot of the times we are quick to judge and slow to forgive. 
we're quick to look down upon and slow to look within. Like Peter, all of us, including the ones speaking especially, have room to grow. But this is good news because it means there's hope, <laughs> right? It means that there is hope for you to grow. There is hope for an impatient man like me to grow in patience. There is hope for even a fool to become wise. And I've been deeply convicted of this passage this week because I think just for me as a, as a spiritual leader, there's just so much pressure to have all the right answers. But this text lets me know, man, Peter didn't have all the right answers. What makes you think you're going to have the right answer? It's okay. It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes because none of us is perfect. All of us have room to grow. That's how it's supposed to be. So I am looking forward to this year. It's funny, before I kind of went into this sermon prep, as I'm thinking about all the things that I feel like God is calling us to do as a church, I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm like having a panic attack. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if we can do this. After going through this text, I'm filled with the gospel, right? If God could change Cornelius, if God could change Peter, if God could providentially use people in the early church, he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's up to God the gospel, the Holy Spirit. And so I'm praying for all of you. I'm praying for our sanctification. That's what I'm praying for us this year. Sanctification, spiritual transformation. I'm looking forward to the fact that by the grace of God, that our transformation, your sanctification process is not finished. So friends, I just want to remind you today that, that God is a God of new mercies. He is a God of faithfulness. Nothing is going to ever stop him. All you need to do is believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're all in such a different place. And some of us are tired some of us are exhausted and burnt out some of us are, are really content but it doesn't matter where we are per se because at the end of the day you are speaking to us your word speaks to everyone and it does not return empty it takes out the thorn and the briar and it brings up a cedar and you are calling all of us to grow together. You are calling us, calling all of us, in a sense, for our mistakes to be redeemed through repentance and they continually sanctifying a process. In the world, they want us to fake it till we make it. In the church, it's called repentance. It's called confession and forgiveness. And so we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us. <sighs> forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our comfort. Forgive us for our arrogance, our hypocrisy, our self-righteousness. And that this conviction would not bring us to despair, but that it would push us towards the cross as we throw our sins upon the cross 
where you have died and nailed it. And then we will be filled with your forgiveness and grace and love and the power of your resurrection every single day. For this new year, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.